0: Turn back to that passage that was just read to us a few minutes ago, 3 John or third John. Uh, it's on page 1230, I heard, uh, in the Church Bible. If you haven't got one of those, it's just almost immediately before the last book of the Bible, right at the end there, third John. So I hope you can find it one way or another. And uh, while you're getting it, let's pray together, and then we'll turn to it. Father, thank you again for the great gift of your word that is second only to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is so precious to us as we've just been singing. We thank you for this little letter tucked away at the end of the Bible and ask that you would speak to us this evening from it and help us to respond individually and as a church in obedience to your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's always a joy to come to a church uh, which is committed uh, to the Word of God and to the mission of God. Uh, And as we were hearing both uh, when Paul gave the sort of church's mission statement to glorify God through making disciples uh, throughout the world and in the prayers we've had, uh, praying that, uh, that this church would always remain so as right from its founding element, founded by a man who in a sense wanted to be A missionary uh, in India, but the Lord called him to be a missionary here in Scotland and to find this church. It's always good to come to a place uh, where people know this and believe this and are committed to it, as I know that you are. Uh, And so I wanted to share with you a little bit from the New Testament as to what are the marks or uh, those elements of a a missional church, a church that is committed to mission, so that we can just sort of have a certain reality check for ourselves uh, against the scriptures. And, of course, there are a number of uh, examples that we could go to in the New Testament of uh, churches that were remarkably mission-minded. We could think of the original group of disciples in Jerusalem itself uh, and the amazing power that Luke tells us about in the book of Acts that was there uh, as this community, the very first community of the followers of Jesus, combined uh, bearing witness to Jesus in, in word and in preaching the gospel with being a community, a social community of love and of fellowship uh, and indeed of of, of economic welfare for one another and solving the needs of the poor. It was a powerful community in word and works and it grew. Or we could think uh, of the church at Antioch uh, up there in Syria. It's amazing to think that uh, what is happening in the land of Syria today when you think that that is where they were first called Christians in Antioch. There was a church that was well mixed, uh, ethnically, I mean, uh, because the names of the elders had a mixture of Greek and Roman and Jewish names, very well taught as a church. They had the Apostle Paul and Barnabas teaching them for a few years, and they were open to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, we could look at Jerusalem, we could look at Antioch, we could think about Philippi, uh, uh, er, one of the earliest churches in Europe. Uh, founded by the Apostle Paul, and how they supported Paul in his missionary work further south in Greece with financial support and prayer support, what the Apostle Paul calls their fellowship in the gospel, as he calls it, and thanks them for it. Yeah, we could look at any one of those and learn so much, but I love this little letter here right at the very end of the Bible, 3rd John, It's an unusual, much neglected little place to go, and yet I think it does have something to teach us about missional-supporting churches. The background, probably, to this church, because we don't know an awful lot about it, but almost certainly it was one of the churches, uh, probably in Ephesus and the surrounding metropolitan area, that was associated originally with the Apostle John, uh, and we're not told that the writer of this letter necessarily was the Apostle John, may well have been. He just calls himself the Elder, Uh, might have been a disciple of John, possibly John. I'm just going to call him John anyway, Uh, John 1, 2, or 3. It doesn't really matter. Uh, He's certainly writing to this church in which clearly uh, there had been trouble. Uh, If you read the first two letters of, of John, clearly there had been some division in the church. Some people had left the church. There were problems there. And John had sent messengers to the church. He refers to them here as the brothers. And the more recent translators say the brothers and sisters because it's a word that would have included both. And these were messengers who had been sent out as itinerant people who were going back and forward among the churches around the Mediterranean world, either engaged in direct evangelism and church planting, or in some cases in the teaching ministry of the church, uh, or in liaising and networking and nurturing the churches around the the Mediterranean region. People such as we read of uh, in the book of Acts, or or indeed at the end of Paul's letters, for example in in Romans, uh, someone like Phoebe who was a leader of the church in Centuria and a patron of the Apostle Paul, Uh, and she obviously was the one who carried the letter of Romans to Rome. She was an itinerant uh, moving from one to the other, or Priscilla and Aquila, or Apollos, or Timothy and Titus, and people who we read about who were crisscrossing the the world as, as they knew it in the service of the church, what we might call itinerant missionaries. In that sense, they were sent out And they have to be received. And here is a letter which is describing a church which was engaged in receiving and sending these representatives of the churches, these uh, missionary people. And indeed, the part of the letter that we read, the first eight verses, describes the very positive response of one of the leaders of the church, a man called Gaius, Seems to have been the main pastor or leader of that church, who was receiving these people well and hospitably. But on the other hand, the very negative response of a man called Diotrephes, who we can read about there. You can see it in verses nine to the end of the of the letter, who was very different. He was not accepting these people. In fact, he was trying to obstruct them. Now, we're not going to go there tonight. I'll not even bother with that second half of the epistle. But you can see that that's what this is about. Here is uh, John the Elder observing and commending this church under the leadership of Gaius for being a mission-supporting church under its leader. And I think we can learn something from it. I want us to learn two things, basically, tonight. First of all, from verses 3 and 4, we see this church is commended for its faithfulness to the truth. Faithfulness to the truth. And secondly, in verses 5 to 8, faithfulness to the truth. To the brothers and sisters, to these mission partners that were going and coming from the church. Faithfulness to the truth and faithfulness to the brothers. So let's think about those two marks of the church. First of all then, verses 3 and 4, faithfulness to the truth. He says, dear friend Gaius, I pray that you may enjoy good health and all will go well with you. It gives me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth. How you continue to walk in the truth. I've got no greater joy than when my children are walking in the truth. He emphasizes it, doesn't he, several times in that verse. We would have to ask, what does this writer, what does John mean by the truth? It's clear that he doesn't have a lot of space on his paper because he says at the end of the letter, "Do you see that there uh, in verse 13, I've got a lot to write to you, but I don't want to do it with pen and ink. Maybe he'd run out of papyrus or something. Uh, and so he, he, he doesn't have a lot of space, like they say, the Gospel of John. So he's not going to describe everything that he means by the truth. But if we, I think, had the opportunity to ask him and to sit down and say, well, what do you mean, faithfulness to the truth? I think he would have said, well, I basically mean the truth about Jesus. Because Jesus is the truth, as we read in John's Gospel. And certainly he would have talked about the truth uh, of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That uh, Jesus is, is God in human flesh. He's not God pretending to be a man or a man pretending to be God. But this truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God. That's the truth for John. He goes into that a lot in his first letter. Or the truth about uh, how uh, the, the, the Jesus who came also went to the cross. There's a lot about the truth of the cross in John's gospel. And how he died taking our sins upon himself so that we can be forgiven his atoning death. John said that would be the truth. Or the truth of the resurrection. That this is the Jesus who died, that God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses, as Peter and John together said in the book of Acts. Or the truth of his uniqueness, that there is no other Savior in the world. No other name by which we can be saved, as Peter and John together said to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. So all of those things, John would have included, I think, in what he means by the truth, the truth about Jesus, the truth that comes to us by revelation of God and through the witness of the apostles. And the point that John is making here, you see, is that Gaius believed it, lived it, taught it, practiced it, and then supported those who are committed to it. And I think the, the significance of this point is, because you might say, well, we believe these things. Uh, you know, why, why are you going on about all this truth of the gospel? We are a gospel-believing church. The reason I'm emphasizing is precisely this, that it is commitment to the truth of the gospel which generates mission. Because you will find, I think, probably almost entirely that only those churches which hold on to the truth of the gospel which are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ are those churches which have a sense of the urgency of mission which actually believe that it is necessary to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a church that loses that sense of the importance of being faithful to the truth of God will ultimately be a church which will have no concern for mission. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves from time to time Uh, as a church and as individuals, and particularly, I don't know you personally, but if this is a, a relatively new church that you've begun to come to, or you're perhaps a relatively new Christian, I would want to say, look, does it really matter to you what God has taught us in His Word? Is it really important that you come to understand what the Bible says about God, about creation as Uh, as Paul began the service this morning from the Psalms, about what the Bible says about sin, about judgment, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the cross and the resurrection and the future judgment and the new creation. These are all things that are part of what we believe in the truth of the gospel. Is it important? Do you actually hold on to these things? Mission, you see, is not just some sort of extra that is tacked on to a church program. So, I love the expression that our brother used that mission is part of the DNA of this church. That's good to hear. It's not just an e- extra, it's actually part of what it means to be the church. You may have heard this expression that I think sort of traveled across the Atlantic called missional church. Uh, it got rather popular over in America. Um, missional church. And uh, I have a a friend, I was involved in a theological conference and we were thinking about mission and church and all that kind of thing. And he said, you know, I get a bit fed up when people start using this expression, missional church, as if it was something new. He said, to me, those words missional church sound a bit like female women. (laughs) It's it's a bit redundant. You know, I mean, if it's not female, it's not a woman. (laughs) If it's not missional, it's not church. It may be a bunch of people getting together to do some religious things, but if they're not engaged in the mission of God, if they're not committed to the sharing of the gospel and doing in the world what God wants to be done, then they've lost the plot. They've lost the whole point of what it means to be church in the world. So faithfulness to the church, that faithfulness to the truth, is the first thing that John notices about Gaius's leading of this church. And I would urge you as a church to continue to pray that that would remain so. Uh, and I've just been in the vestry here and if you've been in there you'll see all around the walls you see these photographs and the original painting of the founder of the church and photographs of men whose, whose names are well known in Christian history as faithful preachers of the Bible committed to the truth of the word of God. And would you pray, I'm sure that Paul would want you to pray, that those who serve this church in the preaching and teaching ministry that they like Gaius in this letter would remain faithful to the church to the truth lead the church in commitment to the truth of God and therefore to the mission of God and at the same time could I invite you to pray for the work that I represent the work of the Langham partnership because one of the things and I would say the thing that we are seeking to do is to equip pastors and teachers and preachers of the Bible to be men and women who are faithful servants of the truth of God so that the church is equipped for mission and grows to maturity through the ministry of pastors and teachers who believe and teach and live by the Word of God. That's our mission in the Langham Partnership. Well, let's move on then to the second thing that we see in these verses, not just faithfulness to the truth, but in verses 5 to 8, faithfulness to the brothers. As uh, most translations say, the recent NIV says, uh, the brothers and sisters because the word is inclusive. Uh, These were men and women who were traveling around the Mediterranean doing this. As I say, these were itinerant servants of the church who were sent and received in evangelism, church planting, nurturing, teaching, and so on. And Gaius and his church were showing practical hospitality for these men and women and what they were doing. And John, here in his letter, commends that warmly. In fact, he says it's an act of love. Verse 6, the first half of verse 6. They have told the church about your love. This was, this was, was not just a duty. But this was a practical expression of how this church was going to love the people, sometimes strangers, people who came to the church who they did not know personally, but who came on the commendation uh, of John or perhaps Paul or one of the apostles. And these would be men and women who came. That's why at the end of Paul's letter sometimes he commends the carrier of the letter. I commend to you Phoebe, the bearer of this letter. She was the one who had actually come to the church in Rome. But I wonder, can you see that this love in action involves sending, in verse 6, going, in verse 7, and supporting, in verse 8. And I love that. That's one of the reasons why I I like this little letter as a missionary letter, because all of those are involved, isn't it? People are sent, they go, and they need support. So they're sending, going, and supporting in these verses. So verse 6, then, we read this. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. That means these men and women who the church is sending out uh, in mission. Sending out or sending on their way uh, is not just waving them goodbye at the station or uh, at the dock for the ship. It is actually an interesting word that John uses here. It it comes a number of times in the book of Acts and in some of Paul's letters. And it seems almost to have been a a rather technical term, not just, as I said, for waving somebody goodbye and sending them off, but actually doing everything that is needed to enable them to have a safe journey, providing them with food and and, uh, safe Uh, drinking water, providing them with money to pay their fare on board the ship uh, or to purchase what they needed in an inn or something like that, providing them with uh, letters of recommendation to wherever the destination was, kind of visa in, in our situation. In other words, doing all the practical arrangements to enable these people to go safely on their way, food and everything else that was needed. The sort of thing that in many ways churches and mission agencies do today Providing that practical support for those who go out and and John says you will do well to do that for these people You're sending out but to do it in a manner worthy of God and I I love that verse uh, because it it seems so so challenging Uh, How does it what exactly does it mean to do something worthy of God Well, I think it it has two flavors. On the one hand, it means that you're able to sort of do something for another person and then look up, as it were, to God and say, Is that okay? Uh, Is this worthy? Is this pleasing to you, Lord, what we're doing for this person? Is it something that you accept that you're able to say, Yeah, that's okay. Well done. I'm, I'm pleased with what you've done for these people. I'm doing it in a manner that is worthy of the Lord himself. I think it might also have a, a something of that flavor of what Jesus said when he said that whatever you do for one of the least of my brethren, you're doing it for me. And, and when you think of it, if we were to send out our missionaries and to do for them what we would do if it were the Lord Jesus Christ, what difference would that make to the way in which we provide, give, support, and pray and, and be interested in all the things that we do as, as we send people out do it in a manner worthy of God for the Lord's sake uh, I'd love that almost to be written as it were uh, above the uh, in, in, on the wall somewhere wherever missionary committees meet you know, wherever people discuss how we're going to support our missionaries that they would have that text you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God before I worked for the Langham Partnership, uh, I was principal at All Nations Christian College, down in Hertfordshire for a number of years. Uh, and I remember once when I spotted this verse, uh, I used it in one of our pre-terminal staff meetings. Uh, that's not just with the teaching staff, uh, but with all the staff, the, uh, the administrative staff, the uh, Um, you know, the bursar and and those who kept the buildings in order uh, and the nursery staff, all the, everybody who worked in the college. Uh, And and I said, look, we are here as a community and we welcome all these students who come to us from different parts of the world and they're with us for this coming year or maybe two years and then they're going to go out from us. We will send them on their way uh, and, and they will go out for the Lord in their missionary service. And I said, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Whether that's teaching in a classroom, or handling their financial affairs, uh, or feeding them in the kitchen, or looking after the children. Let's do it in a way that is worthy of the Lord. And uh, a couple of days later, I came into my office, and I noticed that uh, the two secretaries, uh, mine and the bursar secretary, Carol and Peggy, they're called, had printed the verse out, uh, on a little piece of paper and laminated it and blue-tacked it to the top of their computer screen. Uh, and I thought, that's, that's lovely. They, they sort of got the message. They said, we want to do our work for these folks in a manner worthy of God. Sending. I wonder what that says to, to you as a church, as a church that is sending people in mission. Uh, and it was lovely to be there last night with some of you and to see that sense of, of being involved in, in what others are doing. And I would commend that to you. Let us make sure that we are sending in a manner that is worthy of God. And then, says John, because they are going, now we're moving to verse 7, because it was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from pagans. They are going for the sake of the name. And what name, of course, was that? Well, of course, it means the name of the Lord, and specifically the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to do anything in the name of God, you remember back to the Old Testament, it was in the name of God that victories were won in his name. Prophets preached in the name of the Lord. Priests would bless the people in the name of the Lord. And then in the New Testament, uh, it was the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that had power uh, to heal, power to work miracles, power to preach the gospel. The name of the Lord meant the presence of God and the glory of God. So there's this tremendous reality that John is referring to. To do anything in the name of the Lord is a powerful thing. And John says that's why these missionaries are going and coming into your church. Coming to you and going from you. They go. They travel. They cross borders. They get on board ships in those days. They live. They work. They walk. They struggle, they face danger, and they do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his honor and glory. That is their highest motivation. That's why they go. In other words, they're not just going, as it were, uh, as tourists for Jesus. They're going for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the name of the Lord. That's an important recognition that we need to have for those who we send out. And says John just adds to that, they go for the sake of the name of the Lord. And he adds in the second half of the verse, receiving no help from the pagans. Or as we might put it in our kind of language, from the secular world. Because of course in John's day, the day of uh, the New Testament of John and Paul, there were many itinerant speakers around the place. Uh, the, The Christian missionaries were not the only people wandering around uh, the ancient Greek and Roman world uh, speaking and preaching. It, it was a popular thing to do. There were many philosophers uh, and, and others who just went around. They were almost like televangelists of our day. They, they would set up stall. They would, they would uh, give great lectures. They would have competitions as to who was the greatest speaker. They would win prizes. They would ask for money. In fact, some of them made a great fortune. They became very wealthy because they were entertainers. They, they, could, they could hold a crowd. And you'll remember that the apostle Paul very carefully distinguished himself from such people in Corinthians. He said, we did not do that. We're not peddling the gospel. We're not making money out of this. They were there to preach the gospel, not receiving money from the secular sources or from the pagans. And therefore, because they were not receiving that financial duty, John says, we have a responsibility to support such people. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul uh, was clear that, uh, that the church did have that responsibility. He refers to it in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But the emphasis of John is making here is that those who are preaching the gospel, those who were serving the church in this way, were not receiving payment Or financial support from any other source and that is still true for many people serving God in Christian mission today of course there are those who uh, exercise what we sometimes call tent making ministry who go as Christian professionals who engage in business in other countries uh, or in uh, any other profession in which they can earn money and that's wonderful when they do that and earn a living and also serve the church but many others are not And that is particularly true in the majority world, the poorer parts of the world. Many of those who are serving not even just as missionaries but as pastors uh, have to also um, uh, support themselves one way or another. Um, Many of the people that we are involved with in, in the Langham Partnership, the pastors that have come for training, not only have to pastor churches, they may also be farming land. They are sort of subsisting to provide money for their families. They're not getting help from any other source. It is remarkable often uh, how they do that so joyfully. Or one thinks of many of those who are doing the teaching and the facilitating and the work in our Langham preaching movements, most of them are volunteers. Most of them are not only not getting paid uh, by secular sources, many of them are not getting paid by us either, Uh, but they are doing this so willingly as volunteers. So that's why John says, look, if this is the case, that they're going for the sake of the name, they're not receiving support from others, then he says, we have a duty to support such people. And that's the emphasis that comes then in verse 8. So there's the sending of verse 6, there's the going in verse 7, and in verse 8, we therefore, and the, the we is emphatic, we therefore have a duty to support such men and women in that work. When we read it in our English, so we ought to do it, the ought can sound a bit weak you know well don't you think we 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 really ought to sort of get something together for the it's it's not just that sort of ought it is we are obliged to do this this is our responsibility this is our duty says john the churches need to be adequately providing for and supporting those who serve god in the mission of the gospel paul of course makes that very clear as i said in one corinthians chapter nine Uh, He says that those who serve the gospel have the right to live by the gospel if they're truly doing gospel ministry. Paul says that he had waived that right. He chose to work to earn his living. But he says the church does have the responsibility. We owe it. We must. It is our obligation to serve God by supporting others. And you notice, just to draw this to a conclusion, at the end of verse 8... Uh, John says therefore we should support provide hospitality which is what he means providing hospitality for such people so that we may work together for the truth and you see how he's come round full circle he started with faithfulness to the truth now he comes round to working for the truth but he says we're working together for the truth he doesn't say they are working for the truth you know the missionaries are out there preaching the gospel and we'll pay the bills no, he says, by them going and us supporting, we are working together. We're all in this together, in this mission. So whether the mission is here, in the praying and the supporting and the sending, or there, in the doing and the witnessing and the teaching and all that has happened, John says we're working together in that sense. And that's why I think that perhaps to end uh, what Paul says to the Corinthians has this flavor. This is Second Corinthians this time. Uh, chapter 9 at the end of the chapter where Paul is talking about how Christians in one part of the Mediterranean, the Greek-speaking churches, had provided financially for the needs of the church in Jerusalem. And at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 he says, this service, verse 12, that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, which of course it was, it was providing for their needs, But it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And so there's this sense that the Apostle Paul has, that the Apostle John has, that there's this togetherness. Those who give, those who receive... Those who thank God, those who praise God, are receiving the blessing of God and sharing in his mission. So I hope that helps us to see something of what I see in this letter of the marks of a mission-supporting, mission-minded church. I believe it is true here. I rejoice with you in that. I would just urge you to pray to the Lord that he would continue to give his Holy Spirit in such a way that it remains true and that this church remains a church which is faithful to the truth and faithful to the brothers and sisters who are sent out in mission to different parts of the world for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.